What up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Playgrounder. Every Wednesday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern on Dash Radio or wherever you get your podcast. Now, typically, Matt and I are here to introduce to you and bring to you the news, but Matt was not able to make it today, unfortunately. So, we have a longtime guest of the pod. Hasn't been on for a while. Hasn't been on since we've been on Dash Radio. So, if any of you are listening on Dash, you've been listening faithfully, you'll hear a new voice. But, if you are a longtime listener of the pod, you know the man. Shaw's Law Podcast. Rob Shaw also running the Playgrounder Trade Pod. Rob, it's been a, it's been a while since we've recorded together. Oh, man. And the Shaw's Law people have been on it. They've been like, yo... When is Chris Jericho coming back? I don't know why you're Chris Jericho, besides the fact that you're Canadian. Wait, that's what people call me? <laughs> that's what they... Yo, I've never like, known this. I don't know how I let this slip, but yeah, they're like, when is Zach coming back? When is Chris Jericho coming back? <laughs> coming back on the Shaw's Law Pod? Yeah, like, they they miss you. Oh, hey, I'm available whenever whenever you need. I, uh, I love that people are supporting this lowly little Canadian up north, so, uh... Shout out all! Shout out everyone listening to Shaw's Law podcast, asking for Chris Jericho. Uh, is it literally just the Canadianness that? Uh, well, the one who specifically calls you this is a big time wrestling fan, mm. so it might just be easier for him to connect Canada with a Canadian wrestler with you. Right, right. Well, um, hey, I'm uh, I'm happy you're back here, and like I said, whenever you want, I'll be back there. I want to talk, I want to dive straight into it. I want to talk about the Knicks. And as we're sitting right now, now obviously there's still a ton of season left. There's still a whole half. But as we're sitting right now, they're fourth with a home court playoff series, obviously, in the first round. And this was a year that people expect them to improve. They expected, okay, finally they have some solid young talent to build off of. They have a new front office, new coach. But, man, did you... Like, what did you expect out of them in comparison to what they're doing now? Because I don't – unless you predicted them to do this well, <laughs> they're doing a lot better than what I predicted. They're doing way better than I predicted. Crazy. And you're talking about home court in the first round. I just got an email from uh, the Barclays Center, not exactly the Knicks, but they're opening up the Barclays in limited seating, so I assume the Garden is going to do the same thing. And – Home court advantage in the garden in a year where they didn't think they were going to make the playoffs, where people are starved to be outside, it could get really raucous inside MSG. Yeah. Well, that's kind of funny is even if they do let them in, it's just with limited seating. And it's funny how the one year the Knicks are finally good is the year where they have very limited to no fans. So uh, (laughs) that is kind of funny. But you also look at it. And they're fourth in the East, so there's no, like, I'm not trying to discredit them at all. But at the same time, they're only one game over 500. Like, the East has been pretty weak this year. Have you seen the meme that's going around today with the four dragons? No. It's, it's all right, so it's the gold four dragons, and, like, one is the Nets, one is Philly, and one is Milwaukee. And, like, they're, like, these fierce-looking dragons. And then, like, the fourth one is the rest of the Eastern Conference, and it's really derpy-looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. It's literally those three, and then the rest. I saw a Family Guy meme, and this is to take a shot at. <laughs> you pulling it up? This is to take a shot at. This is to take a shot at Matt, since he's not being here, and his Boston Celtics. But it was a Family Guy episode where, uh, what's the dog's name? Is it Brian? 
Brian is the dog. I think it because I don't really watch this show, but I think they were talking to the dog and they were like, "You're the new Meg. You're the new Meg." And they had team names over each person's head, and the dog Brian was the Celtics, and Meg was the Knicks. And they're basically saying, you know, the Celtics are the new Knicks. And oh man, the I mean, but like, I can't really say much because my Raptors are sitting there with the same record, not looking very good either. It, it, it's looking rough for a lot of teams out east. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, looking rough now, Toronto is sitting in seventh, also only half a game back of fourth. So there's also a lot of a lot of hope for those teams, kind of hovering around the end of the or the bottom of the playoffs. I'm sure you and Matt have touched on this. Um, and working with Tom Thibodeau is a job for life. Like he just went and got Derrick Rose, and that's the easy connection. But I would also like to just point out that. Derrick Rose is a John Calipari guy, and the Knicks have shown, if anything, they love a Calipari connection. <laughs> yeah, that's why they, uh, yeah, you have a bit of a Calipari connection, don't you? Yes, I do. Cal's cat. How are you feeling about those Kentucky Wildcats this year? I have to wear my Kentucky Wildcats gear all the time now because I don't want people to think I've abandoned them in this horrible, horrible time. Like, it's cool to wear your gear when your team's killing it. Yeah, which is often for you. Yeah, you got to rock it when, like, we're down and boys are down. Yeah, I I can't say the same. Now, then again, being a Gonzaga fan, we're used to these type of regular seasons playing in such a weak conference. But I think this year is different. I... This team is amazing. You you like this? You like this Gonzaga team? You think they can win it all? Gonzaga's never had a dude like Jalen Suggs. Like as right. good as the team is, like Corey Crisper is a kind of guy we've seen from Gonzaga. Drew Timmy is the kind of guy we've seen develop at Gonzaga. And that doesn't mean they're not good, but Jalen Suggs is a McDonald's All-American, a five-star, a projected one and done right out of high school. Mark Few and Gonzaga have never had a dude like that, and I think that's the difference. Right. And, I mean, you look at this team, if you take Suggs off it, it's still a really solid team. As you mentioned, they built those guys up. They got Kispert up. They got Timmy, you know, Joel AI, even a a transfer like Nemhard. But then you add that top recruit to the mix in Jalen Suggs, and it uh, creates the perfect season. And hope I'm I'm praying for a run to the chip. We had that one year, which uh, we lost to UNC in the final, I believe. That was uh, I don't know. I didn't expect us to get that far, so I can't complain. Anyways, enough enough college ball. Uh, let's go back to the bottom of the East playoff bracket. A team who expected to be there, if not higher. Uh, I was never super high on them, but I did expect them to be better than this. The Atlanta Hawks, as you mentioned before the show, they just fired their head coach Lloyd Pierce. Uh, what do you what do you have to make of that? You think it was a smart move by them? I think it was a last grasp at salvaging John Collins. Yeah. I think there's some issues between Collins, Trey Young, and Pierce. Mm -hmm. And the way that Trey Young, let's just be fully transparent. Trey Young is amazing. I would not want to be on his team. I've played with guys like that. That's not fun basketball for a lot of people. And it seems that John Collins is, the one guy in the organization who's kind of already ready to push back. Like, no, no, this isn't fun to me. NBA teams in the off season, um, 
secretly were worried that the Atlanta Hawks were secretly worried that guys weren't going to want to come to Atlanta to play with Trey. And that was the rumblings around the NBA. So when they had a nice offseason, it sort of quieted things. Mm -hmm. How would you feel right now about taking Trey over Luca? Oh, God, that that's rough. <laughs> well, and I saw because we obviously saw Steve Nash, you know, kind of bash Trey for the way he draws fouls. And then he in the same note, uh, Steve Nash just kind of praised Luca for being such a good foul drawer. And then there was Trey fans coming at saying, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? You just bash Trey for the same thing you're praising Luca for. It's like it's not the same thing. Like, sure, there's a bit of flopping and embellishment in Luka's game, as there is in all superstars, but Trey legitimately throws himself, like, backwards into people, sideways. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, like, that's not basketball to me. If you're trying to legitimately draw contact and put the ball in the net, that's one thing. But when you're just flying into defenders, like, the league has no care to protect defenders at all. It's, so, it's funny that you bring that up. Ten years ago, there were, like, ten dudes averaging 20 points. We're at 34 right now. 42 if, scoring league. 42 if you don't filter out guys without, like, enough games. Mm. At some point, you have to give the defense a chance. I don't want to go back to 90s rock basketball, but I also want to know who's really a bucket and who's just good at manipulating the rules. Right. Well, that's kind of like every sport is going very offensive-centric. You see in football, the defense literally can't touch them until they have the ball, like, at all. Baseball, they, like, juiced the baseball so guys are hitting them out of the park. It's just sports are becoming more offensive-focused because that's what draws the casual fans' attention. But as you know, hoop heads like yourself and I and obviously a ton of others, it it can get really frustrating to watch, as you mentioned, we're not just seeing who's a bucket, who can actually, you know, shake their man off and score, get an open look. We're seeing who can manipulate rules and hook their arm with someone else's and get a call for it. Um, so Nate McMillan is going to be the interim coach. Mm-hmm. And there was some rumblings that he might, Atlanta seemed worried that he might not accept the role. And as far as Lord, uh, Lloyd Pierce, I just want to run through that. He was 64 and 130 for his record, like 64 wins, 130 losses. And like you mentioned, they were 14 and 20 this year and expected to be in the playoffs. You might not have been as high. I thought that they could be a 5-6 seed. Okay. So, like, I'm really swimming in it like, good grief. Yeah, I had them finishing about 8, maybe 7. I can't remember exactly. I think I had them finishing 8th in Washington seventh so those are both kind of looking poor right now but yeah I don't know I I don't think I think as you mentioned yeah it's like a last grasp to switch up the style and keep John Collins because the way John Collins has been playing this year he is a real real legitimate you know potential quote-unquote trade asset that some contenders could pick up I saw um, an article written by The Athletic about him potentially going to Boston and that would that would help them a lot like John Collins could add a lot to a contender He's really good. Do you think he turned down 90 million? He bet on himself. I'm all for people doing that. But you can also say, hey, he's wrong. Where do you stand on that? I I think I don't want to say he's wrong because then that implies that there was a right and a wrong decision. I the way I look at the league right now is you take money when you can get it and then you kind of just maneuver your way elsewhere other other than that it just that's what you can do now 
I don't know if I see him getting much more than that. I I don't know. I still don't think he's a max player. I think that's about where he stands as a guy who, yeah, he could probably be the third best player in a championship team. I think that's about where he stands. But the level for being the first or second best player in a championship team nowadays is way too high. Like, it's James Harden. It's Anthony Davis. It's, you know, Paul George. It's just it's way too high for him, I personally think. All right, so real quick, if things get really, really bad in Atlanta, is John Collins the first player that doesn't suck, so he's not Greg Monroe, that takes the qualifying offer just so he doesn't have to get, take a deal and then wind up stuck somewhere he doesn't want to be? That's tough. Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't think. Do you think Atlanta would be if he does sign for big money? Do you think Atlanta would match that automatically, knowing how shaky potentially it is? They probably will yeah. just to retain the you asset. Have, right? You can't. Yeah, you can't lose an asset for nothing. So, like, if you don't trade him this, if you don't trade him before the deadline, I think you're prepared to match whatever he gets. Yeah, and I, I don't think he takes the qualifying the the QO the qualifying offer. I just I don't think anybody. Does. No, it's I don't think you can't. Like, there's betting on yourself, and then there's, you know, dumb business decisions. And that's, to me, what that is. I'd agree. Um, can we swing out west with another potential trade guy who could really help some teams in uh, Victor Oladipo? Because we see Houston right now absolutely struggling. Probably, you know, maybe, I guess, the second worst team in the west because you can't get much worse than Minnesota. Do you look at Victor Oladipo and think, wow, he could really help a team like a Miami or I don't know where else he's rumored to go to, but that that basically seems like the main point. Either way, do you think he can really help a contender? It it really is circumstantial with him. Yeah. He hasn't looked like the guy that he was two seasons ago when he was in the playoffs where he he hit a level that I don't think after his first couple years in the league, I don't think anybody thought he was going to reach that level, even though he was the second pick. He reached a level, and then he hasn't gotten back there due to injuries and circumstance. I don't know where I see him definitely helping. Yeah. No, and I agree with you. I don't think he can come in and be a number one or a number two guy. If he's willing to just kind of sit in a role of, sure, I'll be a, a tertiary creator, you know, secondary creator, and play hard d then sure but it's also with those guys who you know clearly him guys like john collins they still bet on themselves and they still believe that they can be truly really really impactful top tier players and i'm i'm all for confidence i'm never gonna tell a player he's wrong for having confidence i always i always laugh at you know when i see stuff like you know chris paul thinks phoenix can make the finals this year and everyone bashes him I'm like what do you expect him to say like nah this ain't our year Yo, <laughs> have, just have we fight, talked about this before for the second round <laughs> yeah he's like like, where do you think your team ceiling is? Uh, we're probably like a first round exit if I'm thinking realistically. Like, no, like these guys have to have confidence. But I'm with you. I don't think Oladipo really does it. Um, I have a question about Oladipo. All right, what's that? If move him to a different part of Texas. Spurs? No, let's get Luca somebody else who can, who at least thinks they can make plays on the ball. I don't know what they could give up outside do think, of. Do you think Houston would be interested in Kristaps? Not I, don't, I, was, I don't see why not because it's it's a it's a it's a risk. It's well, I guess I shouldn't say it's a risk because you're it's like you're you're losing Oladipo. It's one of those things where it's like you know a really potential high reward, or you just kind of flop and you have to hold on to that contract. Do you think it's worth it if you're Houston? Would you look at that? 
I look at so they have to make a move because we just talked about you can't lose an asset for nothing. And I guess Houston's a little bit different than other teams because there's no state tax in Houston. And we've seen their ability to grab free agents when they're good. So, like, that does matter. So getting rid of Vic opens up cap space. But cap space isn't equal for every team. But Houston is one of those teams where cap space actually matters. With all-star Christian Wood? With almost all-star Christian Wood if we expanded the rosters. Yeah. How how many spots like is your is your ideal all-star team to me it's probably 15 because this is a game that doesn't matter this isn't baseball where oh the al wins so they host the world series there's no real reward to the all-star game they had to add the elam ending last year because the past all-star games had been so bad and and that made it super fun but they'd been so non-competitive before that so if you add 15, nobody wants to really play a lot in these games. So going 15 deep doesn't particularly change much. Like, you don't want somebody going 30 minutes in an exhibition game. Mm-hmm. So just add 15 and, like, let's get more guys in. It's already the most inclusive Hall of Fame in sports. Why not the most <laughs> inclusive All-Star game? It's true. But before roster expansion, personally what I want to see is them – Removing the conferences, just give me the best 24 players, the best 30 players, however big the roster is. And the other thing I want to do is just remove position limits. Like, I I think people complain that this is such a guard-heavy league that if you do that, there will be no bigs. Like, no, if you had no positions and Bede would still be in it, Jokic would still be in it, Anthony Davis would still be in it, Gobert would probably still be in it. Like, I think if you just included the best 24, 26, 30 players, whatever you do, regardless of conference, regardless of position – you would you would still end up with a big variety of conferences and position, and you'd have more deserving All Stars. Where guys like C.J. McCollum and Demar Derozan are actually earning All Star spots, not because they're playing in the West. So this brings me to another point. That's how the All NBA team should be. Uh, Bill Simmons always says All NBA should be a snapshot of the league, and when you do it by position, it doesn't give a proper snapshot because it's well, these were the three best centers, the X best forward, the six best guards, and the six best forwards. Yeah. But in the league today, if you broke down the top ten, it's probably eight guards, four forwards, and three centers, and that's how it should be. So all NBA should just be voted on, and it should be positionless. Whoever gets the the first five highest votes, that's your first team. Your second team is six through ten, and then. 11 through 15. Well, and especially since we factor in All-Stars and All-NBA and all that into Legacy so much, into their Hall of Fame case so much that it's not fair that you can – and, yeah, exactly, incentives and money. Uh, Rob just gave me the the finger. <laughs> the, 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 what, Zeta. Yeah, that thing. Um, but, yeah, like there's so much involved in making an All-Star team and making an All-NBA team that you could legitimately be the seventh best player in the league. You just happen to be the seventh best guard as well, and you don't get rewarded for anything you're doing because the six guys above you, the only six guys above you, play the same position or are in the same conference. It's just, it's not fair at all. Like, they need, and especially since basketball now is so positionless, like, you see Jokic literally playing point guard. You see Giannis playing point guard or center. You see LeBron playing center. You see Pascal play center or point guard. Like, basketball is so positionless, just get rid of it all. 
like the game has evolved and we're using antiquated rules. Somehow we've caught up in everything but how we position the game. Yeah. Well, and, and now people are saying, you know, your position is based on who you guard. And it's like, that's that's not true at all. Like, positions were always offensive-based. Like, when you look at Philly, Ben Simmons, he's their quote-unquote point guard because he brings up the ball. But a lot of times he's guarding small forwards, he's guarding power forwards. So is he really their small forward and power forward? And Seth Curry's their point guard when all he does offensively is kind of stand and shoot off ball? Like, that, it just doesn't make any sense how we describe positions anymore. To me, it's basically just bigs, wings, and guards. And even that can get kind of iffy. Yeah, but that's a streamlined version. Right. That's like that's a more realistic version of what we're kind of talking about. Um, you wanted to touch on DeMar DeRozan potentially being traded somewhere, didn't you? I just wanted – I don't even know – I want to workshop this out with you. What if DeMar DeRozan went to Phoenix? You and I are both relatively high on uh, the Suns. I need them to just beat the Jazz. Like, the Jazz are corny to me. I, I, I want to just <laughs> – I just want to secure a victory against the Jazz if we meet them in the playoffs. The only thing is, I don't know how much DeMar does that for you. I also don't see them shopping DeMar because they're literally fifth in the West. Like, they are having a really good year. But when you already have guys like Booker and Paul and Ayton, you want to add guys who are elite defensively and elite shooting-wise because there's not going to be a ton of other creator-type touches. And, you know, it's funny. Like, three-point shooting and defense is probably still the two weakest points in DeMar's game, even though he's improved in them. I don't know. I really like the way their team's set up now. Like, I, I think they should just go after shooters. Like, if they can get a, a J.J. Redick, who is having a bit of a down year, but still a down year for J.J., still shooting 37%. Um, I don't know. I don't know who else Phoenix can get. I've already predicted that they're going to beat Utah. So, I've already seen. I've already predicted that. I don't know. But who knows? Maybe they won't even play them. They're literally only a game back of the Lakers for second. Yo, that Chris Paul stimulus package is magical. You get Chris Paul, and it's just... You're a winner. It's the playoffs. It is. It's so true, and that's what I told people. I said, Chris Paul's going to come in here. They're going to finish... I think I predicted them to finish fifth at the start of the year because I predicted Portland fourth, and that might still be true if Portland was fully healthy because they're sitting six right now without CJ, Nurk, and Zach Collins. So I'm, I'm pretty healthy in my predictions. I predicted Phoenix to go basically win every playoff round that they don't face either LA team in and mm-hmm. we'll see how true that is I don't know you think I, do you think I'm crazy for that or do you like my you like my boldness I've been right about Phoenix so far I literally predicted the Chris Paul trade to to a T if people don't remember that I remember I was there yeah you um, were there I don't think that they are it, it's the LA teams that are really scary because anything else I can just imagine Chris Paul, high pick and roll, and too hard through the legs into 15-footers over Gobert endlessly. Yeah. No, and that's what I'm saying. I don't think they have the perimeter defenders to help Gobert in a pick and roll, so I think they're going to rely on a lot of switches or a lot of drops, and you can't drop or switch on Booker or Paul. Quickly, we got like a minute 30 left. I want your thoughts on this Brooklyn Nets team. Eight-game win streak without KD. It took no KD and no Kyrie for them to lose. Is there a team in the East that realistically can beat them in the playoffs? No, because James Harden has quickly reminded us that before Chris Paul got there and even going way, way back to Oklahoma City, when he was on the floor, Russ was off ball. He was the point guard. 
Before Chris Paul got to Houston, James Harden led the league in assists. And he has quickly reminded us that he is a passing savant. I agree with you. I don't think a team can touch them. But a really, really fun series, and it chokes me up to say this, is a Brooklyn versus Philly series where Philly oh gets Kyle Lowry. Even without Kyle Lowry, like just the thought of Joel Embiid looking at the Brooklyn lineup like it would be fun. But, but I don't I don't give them a chance. I honestly don't give Philly a chance. I think with Kyle Lowry, there's a real chance there. I think in order for it to happen, uh Doc has to break the glass on Matisse Thybul. You just need that second defender when a team has that much firepower. Yeah. Uh, but but if I'm if I'm Toronto and we're talking with Kyle, if I'm Toronto, like to me, Thibault's got to be in that trade. I don't know. That's oh, just agree. me. No, um, no. Agree. And Maxi. Yeah, I think you got to get a lot. Uh, we got to swing it over to Jake Fisher. He's coming on to talk about the outlook of the whole Western Conference. Uh, but Rob, appreciate you coming on, man. No problem, as always. All right, we are, or I guess I am joined. Matt is in here today by Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report. Jake, first off, I want to ask. I know, uh, I know, Twitter can be a little testy at times. So, how have your all your <laughs> mentions and stuff been since uh, writing that report on the Mavs potentially trading Kristaps? You know, I don't typically write about rumors. Not really my my game. I'm more of like a feature reporter. Um, but now that I'm doing this stuff for Bleacher, every week it's been something. So I, you know, started off with doing something about Bradley Beal and then Kyle Lowry. And then even today I did a thing about the Pelicans and the Pelicans fans weren't too happy. So it's just kind of accessible, but it is what it is. Comes with the job. Yeah. My favorite part is like, if you're an analyst and you analyze the game, obviously that comes with some opinion and stuff and people can get mad at you for that, but it's the it's the funniest when you see someone just report straight facts and then the fan base get mad at you and say you're wrong and stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Porzingis situation is interesting, too, because, you know, the secret's been out for a while around the league, around front offices. And I was just kind of the first person to actually bring it to light because it has been preliminary but I wrote that, you know, I didn't write that they're shopping Christoph Rosingas and he's on the block and he's going to get moved. You wrote right. that, you know, they're quietly gauging interest. Right. People see the headline and uh, it gets people upset. And then, you know, I get the comments, oh, sources say just equals that you're bored and have nothing else to write today. It's like, all right, man, I called 10 other teams. Like, yeah. this is what's happening. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, why don't we start there? Uh and obviously, you know, it's still very unsure if Kristaps will actually get traded. But Dallas has slowly started. I don't started, think he will, yeah. No, yeah. But I, Dallas has slowly started to climb their way up, and they're looking decent. Do you think there's a way, let's say hypothetically, if he does get traded, do you think there's a way that they can make a trade that'll make them better this year? No, and, and, and that's honestly why I wanted to write about the situation. That's why I thought it was interesting. Like, number one, you have the fact that Dallas, you know, obviously gave up significant draft capital to get him in the first place. And, you know, by all accounts, it was working perfectly up until he got hurt in the bubble. And so now the fact that that player who is supposed to be Luka Doncic's number two, you know, Batman to his, or Robin to his Batman, like they're going to be competing for titles together for 10 years. The fact that that guy is now on, is now being considered like available for the right price, or, or at least like they're open to discussing him like that in itself 
was newsworthy, but also because he's been playing so poorly. And I, ha- I to be honest, I haven't watched him since he came back from that lower back strain l- last week. Uh, so I don't know how he's moving now or if there's been, been any improvements. But, you know, the, the Mavericks defense was built around him to be that backline rim protector. And he's just not that. They've been, like, legitimately awful with him on the court defensively. So there really isn't, especially with that with, with his contract number, there's very limited op- opportunities to move him if Dallas did get to that point, um, which, you know, if they get to that point, they might not even be able to move off of him. So that's what makes it such a complicated, interesting scenario, I think. Right. I was saying on our last episode that we did, even if you were 100% like if I was Dallas and I was 100% sold on trading him, I would still wait out a bit because, I don't know, I still hold belief that you can at least get a better version of Kristaps a shot because I feel like his value is almost at like the lowest it's going to be. I don't know, what do you think? Do you think it can go up from here or do you think it's only going down? I, I, I'd be, I, I don't know how it could get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> right, well that's like, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, with him on the court before this last little stretch, when, when I wrote the story last week with him on the court, it was like 540 minutes, I think. Their defensive rating was like 119, um, and that was like two full points below the 30th-ranked Sacramento Kings. So yeah. that is uh, not great when you're supposed to be considered a rim protector and a defensive, you know, linchpin. <laughs> right, and I mean, injuries suck. It's obviously, you know, a lot of credit of to the amount of injuries he's went through. So uh, how about we shift over to another team kind of hovering around the bottom of the playoff picture there? The Golden State Warriors, who honestly I feel like have like the highest ceiling and the lowest floor all at the same time. Like this year has been so up and down for them. And Steph has been literally right up at his MVP level. Do you think this is a team who, you know, if they stick 7-8, has a real, real shot at having a first-round upset or like an 8 over a 1 or a 7 over a 2? I mean, they're they're, they're potentially, you know, as dangerous as any seed. Dating back to those We Believe Warriors, you know, back when. Um, you're right. When they're on, when Kelly Oubre is connecting, when Andrew Wiggins is connecting, when Steph and Draymond are in sync. I mean, they got kind of blasted by the Lakers last night, but I think it was they, that was the second of a back to back. I'm I'm struggling to remember who they played um on Saturday night, but they looked phenomenal and they have they have moments where that where it seems like it's starting to click. And they could be, they could be. I don't know if they're going to be like a legitimate first round upset potential, but I don't think any of those top teams would want to play them. Like I don't right. think the Utah Jazz or the Clippers would want to see those guys in the first round. But the, the the truth of the matter is, as it stands, like right now, the four, the four, five of the four teams, the four teams in the playing game are going to be in the playing tournament are going to be. Uh, Four of, of the five of Golden State, Denver, Memphis, Dallas, and New Orleans, and all of those circumstances, like even like the Pelicans, you know, aren't playoff tested. But it'll be tough for a team to see Zion on a night-to-night basis. So it just yeah. goes to show how deep the West is, and, and I don't think any of those teams at the top of the conference are going to have an easy out in the first round at all. No, well, and it's pretty crazy, as you mentioned that huge pool of teams in play for the play-in tournament. And even if you look at San Antonio at number five 
and then New Orleans at 11. There's only a five-game difference between them. And I feel like we've seen a yeah. lot of that in the East and the West this year where the conferences are just so close together, like way closer than normal. Do you think that's because, you know, the league is legitimately has this many high-level teams or even teams, or do you think it's the fact that there's no real home court advantage, or do you think it's both or other factors? It's definitely a weird season in, you know, all circumstances, right? With you know, in the middle of the pandemic and no fans and the travel back to back. I, I think um, the biggest thing now is like, there are, there are very few teams like even Oklahoma city, they're, they're expected to be one of the worst teams in the league, right? Like they have their guy already in Shea Gildas Alexander mm-hmm. and, you know, the magic, for example, are not phenomenal by any stretch, but like they have a legitimate all-star in Nikola Vucevic and it seems like pretty much every team, even the Cavs, you know, we saw that run they went on in the beginning, even though they're kind of getting ready to sell here at the deadline. Like, it seems like pretty much every team outside of Detroit, like, has a guy, has players. And I think that's a credit to just the talent that we're seeing in the league. I mean, the defense has been pretty down across the board, I would say, this season. But I don't think we've ever had more talent in the NBA than we do right now. Yeah, and it's so spread out amongst the teams ever since – KD left and then obviously there was that down year where the Nets were injured and the Warriors were injured last year and now seeing almost every team at full strength obviously there's still a few um let's jump to the top of the conference and like you you're saying about you know your mentions going crazy I don't have the same popularity as you but I've been known to really not not be very favorable on Utah this year and I understand that they're a fantastic regular season team uh, but you hear so many varying opinions of them. You hear that they're definitely, like, legitimately a finals contender. You hear that I've even heard that they'll go out round one. I kind of stand that – I predicted that if they meet Phoenix second round that Phoenix will win. Where do you stand on their kind of, like, playoff ceiling, regular season ceiling? Because they're kind of a polarizing team. I think they're only polarizing because they're in Utah. Like, mm. as much as – I mean, I, I live I, – I'm based in New York. Like, I will – readily admit that there is an East Coast bias in the NBA media landscape. There just is. I mean, a lot of the national writers are based out of New York. They're based on the East Coast. Um, and it's I mean, it's tough to stay up past 11 o'clock to watch these games finish. And the Jazz typically like – I, I fell in love with the Jazz in 16-17, um, that year Gordon Hayward um, really became an all-star with them um, because the Warriors – I was working nights at SI at the time and the Warriors were so good and just blasting opponents. I needed a different team to watch at 1030 at night because those games were like 30 point blowouts. So it's, and the difference between what they are now and what they were then, and they're definitely deeper and their playing style is far more efficient and they're launching all these threes that they were never doing. Um, I don't know who wrote, I think it might've been Tim McMahon, on ESPN, but there was some really interesting story I saw about how, you know, the Jazz kind of took their loss to the Rockets and and kind of internalized that. And um, they just have, I mean, Jordan Clarkson is playing out of his mind. Um, They have a bunch of shooters who can get, even Bojan Bogdanovic can get his own shot when when they need to. Like, outside of Royce O'Neal, like, they just play guys who – are 
double threats and triple threats yeah. with the ball in their hands. And they got Rudy Gobert running down the middle. And that defense is stifling. Like, they're legitimate. Quinn Snyder is one of the best coaches in the NBA. And to me, like, anybody who doesn't think that is kind of missing the point on, like, what these games – like, the regular season doesn't matter, ha-ha, but it does. And they're they're very, very scary. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I mean, I definitely – I still think they're good. I, I would struggle predicting them to go out round one, but – when you look at the playoffs, it kind of seems like, you know, all the depth and all the ball movement, it, it kind of fades away and you basically go to who are the top, you know, three guys on the court, or the top four guys on the court. And I don't know if Utah really has that when you're facing up against L.A. or even realistically, I don't know if they have, you know, the top players in a Phoenix series with Chris Paul and Devin Booker and how good they're looking. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I, I think that gets overstated a lot about how the game slows down in the playoffs. I mean, it does, but in the fourth quarter, when that game really does grind to a halt, and in the half court, the Jazz are going to have four shooters and Rudy Gobert at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and you bring Rudy for a high pick and roll, and Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley can go make a play. He's, they can have their lob threat at the rim, and they're going to have shooters around it. Like it's pretty hard to stop. So. Right. And I think Donovan Mitchell is like kind of getting overlooked a bit because of Clarkson's play and because Mike Collins had a good year and because of that, you know, bias like we talked about and the fact that, you know, the Suns are kind of a hotter team now with Chris Paul. Like, I just think they're being, I I think a lot of the skepticism is more of like circumstantial than actually based on evidence. Right. No. And I mean, that's totally fair. Um, However, I know they have a lot of injuries, but do you still see the Lakers as the favorites in the West in your eyes? Yeah, in in terms of you know when when you when you're wearing the crown, someone's got to take it off your head. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you know the Anthony Davis situation is very precarious. Like we just don't know. It, you know the break. The all-star break and the mid-season break that we had this year has kind of become like a security blanket and like a safety net. The teams are just kind of slapping on the things. Like, oh, yeah, I'll be back after the all-star break. I'll be back in the second half of the season. Like, they're just using that. Teams are using that just to kind of give out a, a, a pretty general barometer without actually having to pin down legitimate timetables, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, by all accounts, I mean, I, I hope Anthony Davis is healthy. I'm not rooting for anybody to be injured, but we just don't know. And at this point, without him, that Lakers team is pretty thin. Yeah. So if if he's at full strength, if he's able to come back and find a rhythm, like, yeah, it's at, until we see a team beat LeBron James and Anthony Davis together, they're the favorite. But that's a big question mark right now. If he's going to be – if AD is going to be that full, that guy at full strength that he was, you know, arguably was the finals MVP, even though LeBron got it last year. Yeah, no, and I mean, you have the AD injury, you have the Schroeder injury, and, you know, beyond, as you mentioned, beyond LeBron and AD, as much as they have a couple solid guys, they are fairly thin, and we just saw that when they went on that four-game losing streak. Uh, I want to talk about the other team in L.A. who, like I mentioned, the Warriors having the highest ceiling and the lowest floor. I feel like the Clippers are around that same boat of a team that, no one can help but see as a contender, but also have no hope in them. Does that like, does that statement, is that true about the Clippers or is it just me? 
Yeah, I, I think the Clippers have been plagued by the one the fact that from the get go they were assembled to be a title contender, right? And you know, same with Brooklyn this year, and to to an even lesser extent last season. But obviously they knew they were going to be waiting for Durant, and they didn't have James Harden yet. And same for the Lakers. But it's the the Clippers are in such a championship or bust mentality, especially because I feel like they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder um, to be the team in LA that they have a tendency to, I mean, Lou Williams said it the other night, they have a tendency to not take their opponents seriously and they play down their competition. And if they have an off shooting night, they don't have a ton of shooting um, on that roster in terms of when you think of like, prototypical off-ball three-point threats, right? Like Luke Kennard has been um, inactive a little bit this season. He's also not like your spot-up shooter guy, and they want him to be more of a dynamic player and a secondary ball handler type guy. Same with Lou Williams, same with Pat Bev. Like, they're not those, like these guys are not your stand – like, they're not um, – you know, Contavious Cola-Pope, for example, in, in – in, the other Los Angeles team, right? Like KCP, he's there to shoot threes in the corner in the opposite wing pretty much. And in Philadelphia, and you have Danny Green and Seth Curry, and even to a certain extent, like Mike Scott and Furkan Korkmaz. Like the Clippers just don't have those snipers really that, that, that a contender would typically have stationed around those guys who can kind of, keep defenses honest and kind of take some pressure off of their main ball handlers. And when every single person who's an outside threat is also someone who has to handle a lot of creation ability, when the shots are off, you know, it, it, it can, those, those problems can start to exacerbate themselves on like a random Wednesday night in March against Oklahoma city. Yeah. And well, I mean, that's why we see their name come up in trade talks all the time of them wanting to acquire somebody and, We've even heard it with Kyle yeah. Lowry, which I mean, I don't think they have near the assets for that. Um, and who knows? I don't. I honestly don't even think Toronto will trade Lowry. But let's say once again, hypothetically, they do. We've heard Philly. We've heard Miami. Is there a realistic team out west that you think would have the assets and the need to acquire Kyle Lowry? Yeah, I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. Like the Clippers can get Lowry pretty simply by doing Pat Bev, Lou Williams. Avika Zubac and Lafondu um, Kamangeli, uh, that, that makes the numbers work. It gives the, it gives the rappers that big man in Zubac that they kind of need. But obviously, that would pretty dramatically uh, take a take a step back at the Clippers' rotation and their depth. But you know, there's an argument to be made that a guy like Lowry kind of is what Pat Bev and Lou Will are together, um, and he's a, clearly a better version of both. Um, but the team out West that I want him to go to, and, and I think we're getting closer. I, th- I think we're closer to Lowry being moved right now than we were a couple weeks ago mm. being, you know, they, they went on a huge stretch without him. Um, I think they went, you know, the one six straight or something like that. Uh, and, and there are members in an organization that I got a report a couple weeks ago who definitely want to move on from him being that, he will probably walk in free agency this, this summer and to get an asset or a couple things back for him, it, it will be prudent. The team I want to do it, they, they can make the salaries match by just putting in Rudy Gay and Patty Mills 
and maybe throwing in, you know, another one of their younger pieces and a pick for Kyle because the Spurs are, like, frisky. Yeah. And you throw in him, you team him back up with DeMar. The bromance it's, it's a really, Yeah, it's a really intriguing mix of veteran talent and these young rising, you know, perimeter players that they've got with DeJounte Murray and Kelton Johnson and Lonnie Walker. I think like maybe Toronto probably asked back for one of those guys, like a Devin Vassell maybe, mm-hmm. but that that's the one. I, and I haven't heard anything significant to say that those, those conversations have have been discussed between San Antonio and Toronto. But that they they could get it done, and that's that's the one I would want him to go to if the Raptors do move him. And that's I mean that's the last team I wanted to talk about here was the Spurs and. I know they had their down-ish year last year. Uh, they still almost managed to make it in the playoffs, having a great performance in the bubble in those eight seeding games. Are the Spurs, like, are they legit? Are they something that we really should be worried about? Because I, I don't know. Once again, I am personally a Raptors fan, so this, these Kyle Lowry trade talks make me very teary-eyed. But I do understand the uh, appeal to it. I've seen... DeMar in the playoffs and it's not pretty are the Spurs something that we should look at as a real threat or just kind of like a a cute story I think they're a real threat in terms of the fact that they could definitely win a first round series and DeMar I think has improved a lot in his closing abilities Um, I think I think he's just more effective and efficient um, these days I would have to check the numbers, but just based off anecdotal evidence and from watching them play, he just seems like yeah, he's in greater control and knows how to like manipulate an entire defense more rather than just getting his own shot. Um, and they've got guys like Rudy. Hypothetically, you know, exchanging Rudy and Patty Mills would take a little bit from their depth, but they've got like nine, ten guys right now that they play pretty confidently, and. Uh, you know, obviously they're being coached by Greg Popovich. It's right. It's not a combination I think any team in the West would be happy to draw. Yeah, no, and I actually definitely agree with that, that even though he hasn't made an all-star game since he's moved out West, it's more so because it's the West, and he actually has looked better with the Spurs than he did with Toronto, and I think that the stats and the efficiencies back that up. Uh, I do want to take a few minutes here. Uh, you have a book coming out in May, I believe, correct? Yes, sir. May 4th. Yeah, called uh, Built to Lose on the NBA and Tanking. And I am a huge reader and especially of basketball content. I actually just finished uh, Tanking to the Top by your own Weitzman. Was your, Very nice. your Yeah, was your was your book kind of like was was the motivation for that those hinky Sixers or was it a combination of teams or you know, did they play like a big role in you wanting to kind of pursue this this uh you know, research into tanking? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm from Philly originally, and I grew up a Sixers fan. I, I don't root for the team anymore. It's just, it's just kind of ha- – it's, it's very cliche, but it just kind of happens when you, when you cover the league. Like, my rooting interests are for stories that I'm work, working on, you know? Like, if I'm at a game and I need to talk to the other team that's not the Sixers, like, I need the other team to win so they're in a better mood in the post-game locker room, right? But while I was – covering i mean i definitely came up uh, in, in the industry writing a lot about philly writing for the six rows blog on sv nation liberty ballers and it was at the peak of that process time and from reporting on that team it really helped me meet a lot of people in the industry 
Um, and it, the, the thing that's also interesting that I came to learn about is that it wasn't just Hinky Sixers at that time, right? At this very same night that Philly traded Drew Holiday, that significant, like, kind of signaled they were blowing it up. It was the same night that Boston traded Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and started that rebuild. And the same time that um, the Sixers hired Brett Brown, Boston hired Brad Stevens. And before that, you know, Rob Hennigan took over in, in Orlando and traded Dwight Howard. And the Magic were, were pretty poor for a while. The Suns, they hired Ryan McDonough and they traded Steve Nash to Los Angeles and, the, and, and Phoenix was tanking. And, you know, the Kings weren't exactly tanking, but they hired Pete D'Alessandro. The Cavs were definitely taking after LeBron left, and they were being led by David Griffin. There is a trend around the league where teams, when they hire these analytical-minded executives, they all kind of looked at the math and, and, and really realized, kind of like the Thunder or the model from 20, 2007 to when they made the title and they made the championship in, in 2012, to, to, to be a contender – when you don't, you know, ha- when you're not in Los Angeles, and when you when you're not, you know, having a, a, a franchise sto- of storied winning, the best way to get these, the, the only way to compete is to have multiple stars, and the only way to get those stars is either trade, draft, or free agency. And the easiest way, the least complicated way to do that, is through the draft. And then once you have drafted one of those guys, like Dwayne Wade in Miami, for example, it's very easy not very easy, but it's a lot, the path is a lot cleaner to then add superstars to that guy you drafted, right? Like LeBron and Chris Bosh. Yeah. So there was this interesting, there was this interesting overlap with the same exact time these analytical guys were starting to like come to power and want to invest in, in draft capital and build through the draft. It was the same time that those big three heat were running through the league. And a lot of these teams thought, you know what, we might as well be bad on purpose restock our covered because we're not beating Miami anyway. And by the time those guys are, you know, starting to fall off, you know, obviously LeBron is still kicking. But the right. thought at the time was, you know, maybe by twenty twenty, when these players are, are are slipping out of their prime, we'll be ready to compete just like Philly is doing now. Just like Boston, I mean obviously they're in a little bit of muck at this situation. But even Phoenix, they got lucky with Devin Booker. But, you know, that, 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 that was kind of the strategy, and it was pretty widespread. It wasn't just Philly. So yeah. that's kind of the, the stump speech. I, kind of fun, I, I find it kind of funny, you know, when we think back to 2012 and we're thinking, you know, maybe in a few years when LeBron falls off, we'll be able to compete. And here we are in 2021, and he's still right up there in the MVP discussion. Um, so this book sounds great. And like I said, I, I love reading, so I'll definitely be getting it. Does this book dive more into – I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, does this book dive more into the specific game planning and strategy of tanking, or does it go through like specific stories of teams that did, or I guess maybe both? So the the way I've kind of described it, it's it's an anecdotal history of that tanking era, which I think is kind of summed up like between 2012 and 2016. Like it kind of starts with that Dwight Howard, Andrew Bynum trade, um, and kind of ends. Now, right around the right around the time that Hankey uh, ended up, you know, parting ways in Philadelphia, the Kings' whole experiment with George Carl ended. The Magic you know, ended up firing or parting ways with Scott Skiles, and pretty soon after, Rob Hennigan got fired. Pretty soon after, Ryan McDonough got fired in Phoenix, um, and you know, LeBron ended up coming back into Cleveland and that tanking situation. So, what it really does is is, is it takes 
readers. I mean, I talked to th- over 300 people for this book and around the NBA. What it really does is it's going to take you inside locker rooms, inside uh, front offices, inside war rooms. You're going to see, you're going to hear about secret pre-draft workouts that have never been reported before. Um, you're going to t- hear about um, what was actually being discussed in these war rooms amongst these teams. You know, when Philly came on the clock at number three in 2014, you know, the calculus behind drafting Joel Embiid or why he fell for number one. Um, and and the, the book cost $28. So I really wanted to make sure that it was worth people's money. And I really think I, I would put it at like 90% of the material in the book is either like never before reported information or new information about some things that people haven't heard yet. So there's a bunch of stories from like when Brett Brown was in San Antonio to kind of showcase how, like why he was such a, you know, vaunted player development type that Philly wanted to hire. Um, you know, he, he walked, he walked in one night and saw Dell Demps was in their pool. The Spurs have a lap pool um, because Tim Duncan loved to swim. And Brett Brown saw that Dell Demps, you know, the former Pelicans uh, general manager, he was with the Spurs. Now he's a jazz assistant. He saw him like doggy paddling in the, in the pool. Hmm. And he comes in and he's laughing. He's like, you don't know how to swim. So Brett Brown every day for like weeks, these two grown men, they're both in their forties. They'd be in their like Spurs practice gear in the pool. Brett Brown was teaching him how to swim, you know? So there's like little stories like that ranging from, up from, you know, big decisions and trades from, you know, what made the Sixers and the negotiations uh, trade Michael Carter-Williams or Boston's calculus behind trading for Isaiah Thomas at that deadline in 2015. Or, you know, I've got crazy, crazy King stuff from Dubek on a DJ in that front office with handling DeMarcus Cousins and trying to build a team around him. Like, the Kings were definitely going to take C.J. McCollum, number seven in 2013, to pair him with DeMarcus. And we all know how C.J. turned out. And, you know, maybe that would have been a big man, little man combination for a decade. But the Kings went into that 2013 draft with one stipulation. They said, if Ben McElmore is still there, we're going to take him over Cedric McCollum. And look how that turned out. So I've got a lot of little stories like that um, that kind of all add up to 300 pages of just like really, in my opinion, interesting little tidbits that people haven't heard of before. So. No, that is my pitch. (laughs) No, you, uh, you sold that book really well. I'm definitely excited. I will for sure be reading that as I've mentioned, uh, Jake, I want to thank you so much for coming on everyone. Check him out at bleacher report. Obviously, you know, get his book built to lose. I don't know how you cannot want to read it after that pitch. That was, uh, no, that was great. I love, (laughs) I love hearing all the little inside stuff. I just love diving into that and hearing, and it makes me feel like, I know way more than I actually do. So, but thanks for coming on. Thanks for your time. And uh, do you have anything that you want to shout out, I guess, other than the book and everything that uh, you got going on? No, the, the book is uh, it's, it's available now for pre-order. It comes out May 4th. You can get it anywhere online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, at my publisher, Triumph Books. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. And awesome. I'm doing like a reported rumor thing for Bleacher Report once a week now. So that's, that's mm-hmm. about it. That's awesome. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. We stayed up till the morning Talking till the first light of dawn